Well, colonizing Mars is a lot closer than many people realize. Um, most Earthlings are quite unaware of the effort that is underway to send a manned mission to Mars and establish a colony there. Selection has already begun for volunteers for this one-way mission to establish a self-sustaining habitat on the red planet. Now, if the settlement at Mars is successful and uh, people live there for a generation and they have children, those children would technically be Martians, right? And if we ever went to visit them, we would be aliens coming to visit those on Mars. Um, now, bear in mind that those that are born on Mars would not have been like their parents before them, uh, hand-selected for mental stability, for uh, work ethic, for their psychological profile to be able to handle the stresses of living there. You know, all the people that are sent there will be really the best specimens we have of humanity. Their kids will be, well, like your kids. Um, and they will just grow up as normal people. And, and as they kind of proliferate through the planet, somebody will have to be their leader. How will these people choose a leader from among themselves? And what if, after they've elected a leader, they aren't happy with that leader and they want to overthrow that leader? And you might think that these are silly questions to be, answered, uh, to be asking, but they're being taken very seriously by some down-to-earth academics. CNN reported on the annual conference of the British Interplanetary Society. The purpose of this conference of the Interplanetary Society is to develop documents that will be turned into manuals for future spacefarers. They even tackled the challenge of writing a constitution uh, for this alien settlement, concluding that successful space colonies should base their laws, get this, on the United States Constitution and Bill of Rights. At first, I was quite surprised that the British society would come up with that conclusion, but then I realized most Brits think that Americans are kind of alien anyway. Um, the conference took the discussion even further, saying, quote, this year we're discussing what happens if you don't like the government you've created and want to overthrow it, says conference organizer Charles Cockle, a professor of astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Cockle explains, say, for example, you don't like the government and you resort to revolution. Someone goes and smashes up the habitat, destroys the windows, and instantly the place is depressurized, the oxygen is lost, and everybody dies. So how do you dissent in an environment in which violent disobedience might kill everyone? Because think about that, if you stage some kind of coup and something goes wrong, it's not just the leaders that die, it's everybody on the planet that dies at that point. And so the answer lies, Cockle believes, in preventing dictatorships from emerging in the first place. Well, if only North Korea had thought of that. Um, just don't let there be a dictator. Uh, this would be achieved by building non-violent means of opposition to government into the rule book. Perhaps organized labor unions, they suggest, or by holding the leadership to account through journalism and media. Like, that works just great here on planet Earth. It's hard to take such talk seriously. And yet, there's a lot of people that's focusing their attention on these interplanetary problems. Don't you feel like we have our own planetary problems to take care of? Our own solid constitution and 300 million people to choose from still doesn't guarantee a moral or even competent president at times. 
And there's something else that this interplanetary society is overlooking. There is already a race of aliens living on Earth. They are spreading throughout the planet. They have a task to change everybody's mind, to overthrow every government, and to take over the world one soul at a time. I'm not talking about science fiction. I'm talking about theological fact, as we shall see in the book of Philippians, chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles for the last time to Philippians, chapter 4. Now, if you're joining us today, don't worry. I'm going to read and explain the whole book before we get started. No, I'm just kidding. But um, you should read the whole book. And uh, the basic takeaway that you want to get from it is this. Paul is in prison in Philippi. Philippi was a city that was a Roman colony in a Greek province. So these are Greek citizens who are also Roman citizens and have all the privileges that come from that domineering empire's citizenship. So that's something that they prize. Paul is writing them to thank them for a monetary gift that they have sent by the hand of Epaphroditus. And in so doing, he thanks them for this gift. He emphasizes that he's especially thankful for the blessing that they will get from it. And that's what we've been looking at in the last few weeks. But the overarching theme of this epistle of joy is that one's joy is not linked to one's circumstances. Remember we said that there's a difference between joy and happiness? Happiness is linked to happenstance, the way things happen to be. As your circumstances change, your happiness goes up and down. You get a raise, you're happy, and you get a flat tire on the way from work, and you're sad. So it's your circumstances are very closely linked to your, your happiness. But joy is different. Joy is about your perspective on your circumstances. And your perspective on your circumstances is linked to your relationship with Christ. If you have a true and abiding faith in Jesus Christ as the sovereign God of the universe who has saved you from your sin and has guaranteed for you eternal life and an eternal inheritance that can never be taken away from you, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that fact, that joy that you can draw from being right with your creator through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that joy that you can draw is always with you, even when you're in jail or have a flat tire, or stub your toe, or get a fearful diagnosis of a dread disease, or lose a loved one, or are unable to have children, or your business goes under, or whatever it is. And as those circumstances in life go up and down, your happiness goes up and down, but your joy is firmly established by this bedrock perspective that you have on whatever happens is just temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory. So that's what we've learned as we've been going through this uh, epistle verse by verse. Now, as Paul closes this majestic letter, he hints at this heavenly reality, this heavenly citizenship one last time. And so let's just read the closing verses from verse 20. Philippians 4, verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you and all the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this morning we're just going to look at two aspects of our identity as heavenites. For those of you who are new, that's what we call ourselves here. We are citizens of heaven. We are not earthlings, we are heavenites. Two aspects of identity so that we will understand our role in earth's society. Firstly, we're going to ask the question, what in the world is a saint? 
he keeps talking about saints here. And then secondly, how do saints change the world? And there's three ways. So the first question here, what in the world is a saint? Verse 21, he talks about these saints. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers, and remember the word brothers in Greek plural can mean brothers and sisters, so the other Christians who are with me greet you. Verse 22, all the saints greet you. So the saints are greeting you. I want you to greet the saints. Who are these saints? Well, let's start by learning who they are not. On September 16th, Mother Teresa of Calcutta was canonized by Pope Francis and the Catholic Church. This is a step in the direction of being declared a saint. In order to become a saint in the Catholic system, you need to be heroically virtuous. You have to have this heroic virtue. And two miracles that are attributed to you. And so these are people that prayed to you and then were healed, for example. And those need to be recorded miracles. Apparently, those qualifications have been met by Mother Teresa. Some of the other qualifications you would think would be part of being a saint are left off. For example, actually believing what the church teaches. Here are some of what Mother Teresa believed. In her book, A Simple Path, on page 31, she says, I've always said that we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu. A Muslim become a better Muslim, and a Catholic become a better Catholic, unquote. That's not what the Catholic Church teaches, by the way. In her book, Life in the Spirit, Reflections, Meditations, and Prayers, she writes on page 81 over to page 82, it matters to the individual what church he belongs to. If that individual thinks and believes that this is the only way to God for her or him, this is the way God comes into their life. If he does not know any other way, If he has no doubt so that he does not need to search, then this is his way to salvation. In other words, whatever church you're part of, whatever religion you're part of, if you truly believe that that's what you need, then that is all you need to be saved. In an interview with Christian News, a nun who worked with Mother Teresa was asked, what do they, the sisters, tell Hindus who are dying to prepare them for death and eternity? And she replied candidly, we tell them to pray to their Bhagwan." to their gods, unquote. This is not what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else besides the name of Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So a saint is not necessarily somebody who has heroic virtue, has miracles attributed to them. Apparently a saint doesn't even need to understand the gospel according to some systems. But what does the Bible teach? Well, in the Bible, every true Christian is called a saint, and no one else is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone, anywhere, at any time who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved is considered a saint. To be a saint, hagios in the Greek means to be set apart. To be a 
a person that is set apart for specific service. You remember how this epistle began. Uh, Philippians 1 verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So a church is made up of saints. People that have been set apart for, for living for a new citizenship, for a new world, for, as new creations with a new mission, different from the rest of the world. Holy means set apart for God's purposes and applies to all believers. You have to remember that. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That includes you. Now in a great house, he's going to give us a great illustration here. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 and following, Paul is saying in his illustration, you know what it's like in your house. You have some vessels, some plates, and pots and cups that are special. Maybe they're made out of gold or silver, and then you have those that are made out of clay used for dishonorable use. To put it bluntly, uh, you have fine china and you have a potty that your kid is learning to pee in, right? And those are two different vessels. They're both in your house. One's just made out of plastic or whatever. The other's made out of a very rare and expensive material. And you treat those two things very differently. And they're used for different uses. You have your mug that's your favorite cup of coffee, and the guests aren't even allowed to use that. You tell your kids not to put it in the dishwasher because that's your special mug. You're going to look after it. And then you have the kitty litter box. And you don't, you don't confuse those two. One of my kids, who will remain unnamed, sometimes when the dog's bowl is, is kind of nasty, instead of just cleaning it out like a normal person, they will go and get one of Kim's mixing bowls that she uses to bake. and fill it up with water and give it to the dog. So we, we have to try to explain that th those mixing bowls are set apart for human use, at the very least. So that's what's happening here, what Paul says. A saint is any human being that God has called out of the rest and put aside for a special use. His use. And we are to remain holy. We're to remain separate. We're not trying to integrate. We're not trying to be normal. We're not trying to be like everybody else. We need to be ready for his use. So if you're going to share your testimony, you need to have a holy testimony. If you are going to set an example uh, as what marriage should be like, then you need to work on making your marriage one that is a marriage should be. You can't be a, a hypocrite. You need to raise your kids the way the Bible says so you can be useful to God. You need to work and have a work ethic in a way that you are useful to God, that you are different from the other people, set apart for his purposes. If you call yourself a Christian, you're a saint, and if you are embarrassed to tell people that you're a saint, then maybe you should look at your life. What is it that needs to change so that you could say with a straight face to someone at work, I'm a saint, and you wouldn't have to be ashamed of that claim. That's how we should live. Don't make it your life's ambition to blend in here. Keep up with the Joneses. Spend what they spend. Live where they live. Raise your kids the way they raise their kids with their priorities. You're missing the point of why you've been called out.
So that's what a saint is. A saint is a person that has been set apart for God's specific work. That's our first question taken care of. Let's look at the second one. How do we, the saints, change the world? Look at verse 22. It's a really interesting little phrase here. It says, uh, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, the Caesar being mentioned here is Nero. Nero was a whack job. He was a sociopath. This is a guy that hated Christians. He would tie Christians onto poles and douse them with tar and line his swimming pool with them so that when he went for a swim at night, the illumination would be burning Christians. He would burn them alive while he swam. So this is not your everyday leader. You think we've got some bad leaders. This guy was crazy. He was, you know, rumor has it, legend has it, history has it, that he was the one responsible for burning down Rome. You know, this, the, the phrase, fiddling while Rome burns? That was Nero who would play his violin watching his city burn down. This guy was crazy. So how do Christians end up in his household? Christians were scared of him. And they should be. So how is it that Paul is saying... Verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those in Nero's household. Fascinating, isn't it? Christians in the lion's den, in the lion's mouth. Well, first you have to understand the word household is not necessarily just his immediate family, although it certainly would include his immediate family. It would include everyone that Caesar was um, responsible for providing for. So this would include his slaves, this would include his guards, his uh, extended family, not only in his palace, but in the multiple palaces that he had. Um, so th this is a large group of people, but there were some within this group that were related to him either by blood or by function or in his proximity that were saints, believers. And Paul knows them and says that they send their greetings to the Philippians. These were people that were intimately um, acquainted with Paul enough to know that Epaphras had come from Philippi with this gift and they knew of the Philippians and they're sending their greetings back with him. So Paul is emphasizing that the gospel is spreading in Rome where he's a prisoner. Now he, we don't know exactly who these people are but history gives us um, a glimpse of at least three people that we know by name who were related to Caesar who were believers. Titus Flavius Clemens. He was a man of consular rank he was the cousin of the emperor, and Titus Flavius Clemens was executed. He, his wife, Flavia Domitila, was the emperor's niece and was eventually exiled along with her daughter, Portia. And these were their charges, all three. The, the man who was executed and the two ladies who were exiled were charged with atheism and inclination to Jewish customs. You might say, that doesn't sound like being a Christian. Romans called anyone who didn't believe the Roman gods were true to be atheists. If you don't believe in our gods, then you're an atheist. And so these were Romans in Caesar's household, his cousin, his niece, her daughter, who were being accused of rejecting the Roman gods and the inclination to Jewish customs. Remember, Romans thought of Christians as just another type of Jew. So it's very possible that these were the three, at least three, that Paul is thinking about, that knows about, and there may have been many others. Christians in Caesar's household. Now, how did that happen? 
How did that happen? Well, we don't know for sure. Philippians doesn't tell us. Acts doesn't tell us precisely. But we, we have a pretty good hint from chapter 1, verse 12. Just turn over the page a couple of pages. You remember this. I want you to know, brothers, Philippians 1.12, what has happened to me, meaning my imprisonment here, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the, the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So you remember this from the sermon, I don't know, years ago, um, when we were in chapter 1, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Uh, your version might translate as the praetorium guard. The praetorium, were, the imperial guard, were a, it was an elite unit of loyal soldiers that functioned as Caesar's personal bodyguard. And uh, they lived in the imperial quarters, and they served him, Caesar, personally, but they worked in shifts, and one of their duties was to take care of guarding high-profile political prisoners like Paul. And so Paul, in chapter 1, is telling us that these people in the imperial guard, um, the whole imperial guard, have learned that the imprisonment was because of Christ. Paul was evangelizing his captors. And so it's very possible that this is how the gospel got into the nooks and crannies of the Roman imperial family. So we think of bad things happening to good people as something to be avoided. Right? Paul, he's an evangelist. He's very successful. People are getting saved. He's planting churches. He's a missionary. He's well-equipped. He's apostolic. He has charismatic gifts. And yet, he ends up in jail. And we think, what a waste. I mean, if I were running the missions effort in the first century, I don't think I would put my best preacher with miraculous abilities in prison in one spot. I think I would just let him roam, planting churches. But God has a mission. God does not only want to get the gospel to the places where it's easy to reach. He wants to get the gospel everywhere. And he's going to place the gospel right under the nose of the Christian-hating Emperor Nero himself. So that you have no disadvantage to being saved. You could have been born in a Jewish family. You could have been born in a Christian family. You could have been born in an atheist family. You could have been born in the dictator of the empire's family. And the gospel can still get to you through the faithfulness of God's people like Paul. He doesn't throw up his hand and say, well, I'm in prison. I guess God has moved me off the board. It's now up to other people. He preaches the gospel to the other prisoners. He preaches the gospel to the soldiers. Those soldiers are talking about it on their lunch break and at the water cooler. They're telling people in the family. The slaves are overhearing. They're telling their mistress, you know, the mistress is she's, she's combing her hair. You won't believe what this guard told me. This guy in prison said that there was this man who was God and he became human and he lived among us and we killed him and on the cross he bore our sins and then he rose again on the third day and if you just believe believe in him and you renounce your ungodliness and you renounce all the false gods, you can live forever and ever and this guy can do miracles. And Portia or Flavia Domitilla says, really? Tell me more. I'm going to tell my husband. And they decide we're going to get baptized, even if it means our execution in exile. 
And that's how God works. And, and that's how God's working in your life. And you might say, well, I don't work at the White House. We'll work on that. Um, we need some people to work at the White House, but wherever you are, where does he have you working? What tech company are you at? What school are you at? What, what firm are you at? Where are you in the business? Who do you have influence over? You're in the military, you get stationed in a foreign country. Don't just think of the other people in, in your platoon. Think of all the people over there in, in foreign lands that are going to hear the gospel from you. That's why God moves us around. God embedded Paul among people who spent time with the imperial family. You never know who you're sharing the gospel with, who they know. We're all six degrees of separation from getting the president saved, right? Or anyone. So this is how Christians change the world. They don't change the government by force or resistance or rebellion. We don't change the world by a coup d'etat or fomenting violent revolution. But we can still change the world. Do you remember Acts 17? In Acts 17, we have this amazing glimpse of Christians changing the world. So Paul is busy preaching. People are preaching there. People are getting saved. Even some of the leading ladies in the city, some of the, the, the well-to-do people are getting saved. So you've got poor people, you've got rich people, you've got influential people getting saved. The, the city, the gospel is going out in Acts 17. This is in Greece. And when they could not find them, uh, so Acts 17, 6 says that there were some people that were upset about this. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, some of the Christians, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So do you see what the accusation was? In Acts 17, 6 and 7, you have this insight into how Christians were changing the world. They're going into the city. They're preaching the gospel. This is being misunderstood or misconstrued ingenuously by this group of rabble-rousers and say, well, they were meeting in Jason's home, little home church there. We can't find them, so we're going to beat up Jason. They take him to the courts, and they say, these people, you know the ones we've heard about? The ones in the news? The ones who are turning the world upside down? That's the Christians. That's what they were doing, changing the world. And so they were misconstrued here as uh, teaching that there's another king and against the decrees of Caesar. But friends, this is our greatest defense of that. Is no, uh, basically our defense is nuh-uh. I mean, <laughs> nuh-uh, we weren't. We don't teach against the decrees of Caesar. That's not what we're known for. Yes, there's another king, Jesus, and we'll, we'll get to what that means, but we're not teaching against the government. We're just sharing the gospel, person by person. And it looks to people like we're overthrowing the government because there's so many people getting saved in the city that the whole city is starting to change. Their whole revenue structure would change. All of their, I don't know what was going on at the pagan idolatry, wokeness, or whatever it was, that they were funding through the city, that revenue's drying up. We found in chapter 16, remember, the, the, uh, there was this girl that was able to predict the future because she had a demon in her, and Paul cast her out, and now they were upset about that because they lost money. And people weren't worshiping idols anymore because they were worshiping the true God, and people were burning their, their books of magic because they were turning to the scriptures. And that changed Greece. 
And it changed Rome, and it's trickled down all the way to where we are today. Changing the world one soul at a time. So we can change government in, in three ways I'm going to give you here. Three practical ways. Submission, prayer, and evangelism. Just briefly, submission. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I mean, your vote counts, but actually God's taking credit for making our president our president. Those that have exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who res resist will incur judgment. So I know you're thinking, I, I, I have to believe this because it's in the Bible, but wow, we've had some bad leaders. Maybe a authority over you in school at some point, or some corrupt cop, or corrupt judge, or you look at some of the fiascos and what happens among Congress people, and all, all the way up to the White House, and you're just thinking, God's picking these people? <laughs> Couldn't he be doing a better job? Remember what I've taught you before, sometimes you get what you pray for, and sometimes you get what you deserve. That's up to God. The point is that he chooses our leaders. Yes, we need to be faithful to do what he tells us to do because he uses us as the means. But if you resist your leaders, you're resisting God and what he has done. And you think, uh, I, don't, I, just, I just don't see it. Well, go read the book of First and Second Kings. Everyone thinks that their leader is bad. And there are some leaders that are worse than anything you can imagine. That's what the book of Kings is about. The whole world is pining for a leader who can actually do the job. Good news if you read to the end of the book. He's coming. He's not here yet. And God wants you to feel like your leadership is inadequate. He wants you to feel that you can't be fulfilled by government. He wants you to feel that this world isn't all that's there, that this isn't your home, that this is where the earthlings live, but you're a heavenite. And you have a king. And part of the way that you submit to him is you submit to the leaders he puts over you while you're here. Because you have more important things to do than defend your rights. You have a gospel to preach. Submission. Another cross-reference is 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it to be the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him. That was Emperor Nero. Be subject to him. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore government. John MacArthur says in his brilliant little book, Why Government Can't Save You, MacArthur writes, The Lord expects us to speak out against sin, injustice, immorality, and ungodliness with courage and diligence. A certain, this is important, a certain amount of healthy and balanced concern with current trends in government and the community is acceptable as long as we realize that such interest is not vital to our spiritual growth, our righteous testimony, or the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Above all, the believer's political involvement should never displace the priority of preaching and teaching the gospel. That is a very important principle. It's okay, it's good, it's actually being a faithful steward of the freedoms we've been given to avail ourselves of the po political process in whichever country you'll find yourself. Different countries have different amounts of freedom. And we're kind of at the, the pinnacle of freedom that you can even attend 
protest rallies and you can write your leaders and disagree with them and you can make statements about them and in public and not fear reprisal. And so there's a stewardship that we need to be using that, but not to the detriment of preaching the gospel. You don't need political freedom to be righteous. Paul didn't have it. Peter didn't have it. Their readers didn't have it. They were able to be righteous. So that's all MacArthur's saying. There's a healthy, balanced amount of concern we can have by following the news, but don't don't behave as somebody who's so invested, like all of your happiness, all of your joy, all of your future and security and everything that's important to you is resting on the next presidential election. I'm telling you right now, spoiler alert, you're not going to be happy with who they choose because they're choosing from a pool of people who are sinners. And there's only one person you'd be happy if they were in charge, and he's coming. You don't get to vote. Now, one good example of somebody who had a a balanced view was William Wilberforce. You know, William Wilberforce um, came of age in the late 1700s. He wanted to be a pastor when he got saved. And he was being discipled by John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace. And John Newton, in his wisdom, told William Wilberforce, you've got such power in your position and your family connections in the politics, because he was in British Parliament, don't quit. Don't be a pastor. Stay there and work for the kingdom in Parliament. And he did, and he started a long campaign that culminated with the, the falling of the slave trade in Britain in 1833. That was pioneered by William Wilberforce because he didn't leave his job. And he, he worked through the political system to help his brothers and sisters who were enslaved. So praise God that we have a government that allows us to vote and petition Congress and have legal protests. Let's be good stewards of that, but let's not ever let that replace our hope in the gospel. So that's the first way we can influence government. The second way is prayer. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. You might say, well, yeah, prayer. No, no, no. This is the main thing that you can do for your country. <laughs> Ask not what your country can do for you, but pray for your country, right? 1 Timothy 2 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 and following Paul says, I want you to pray for your leaders, your political leaders, your kings. All of those in authority over you. High positions. And this is what you need to pray. This is why you need to pray. So that we Christians may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Your government is doing a good enough job if you can meet at church on Sunday. That's what we're asking for. That's a pretty low standard, and of course we should have higher standards, but at the very least, the main thing we're praying for is that you don't have to sneak at night in disguise to come and worship Jesus. And you think, yeah, that's pretty primitive. I have been on a missions trip to a country where I was asked to preach in a church where we had to drive an hour into the mountains in the Himalayas, that we had to hike to a clearing in the forest, that people had hiked to by night so that their neighbors wouldn't see them leave, so that we could sing softly in the middle of nowhere because if they got caught, they'd all be put in jail. That happens today. These are people who, if they want to do a Christian burial, they put their loved one 
in a sheet in the trunk of their car and they drive into the mountains at two in the morning and they dig a hole in a random spot that no one will ever know and they dump it there and they have a little gray size service because if they don't use their country's method of pagan cremation, they'll go to jail. Friends, that's no way to live. That's not dignified. Being forced to scrounge around at night to worship Jesus. Our country lets us declare from the rooftops that we're Christians. How often do you declare that at work? Yeah, you might be frowned upon by people. You might even not get a promotion, but you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to get executed. Brothers and sisters have done far more than you've done for Christ and, and paid with their lives. So let's pray. Let's pray that we can continue that. And also pray that these people get saved. God desires all people to be saved, even our kings. The church father Tertullian wrote in Rome, he said this about Christians, without ceasing, for all our emperors we offer prayer. This is what they prayed for. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, and the world at rest. That is a great prayer. That's what we should be praying for. Not only the, the security of our empire, in our case we would say our country, our borders, the protection of the imperial house, that the, the White House is not struck with tragedy. Pray for brave armies. We need that. Pray for faithful senate. Pray for virtuous citizenry and pray for world peace. Why? So we can come to church. So that we can evangelize. So that we can raise our children to know the truth and not fear reprisal from the government. So that's prayer. Submission, prayer, and finally evangelism. You know Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. I am the supreme potentate. Because of that, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as we did this morning, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, which is happening right now. So we're obeying this. That's our job. Those are our marching orders. So, so we can change the world through submission to our government, through prayer for our government, and through evangelism. That's our job, to change the world through evangelism. One soul at a time. I've told you before, the Crusades of the um, 11th through 16th century, these people try to convert the world to Christianity by force. We'll just come in with an army. You have to be baptized. You have to become a Christian. If you don't, we'll kill you. Oh, yay, look at all these people that are being baptized. Yay, we're baptizing the nations. There's no heart change. It's not how you change the world. You can't do it by force. Constantine was wrong. One person at a time, baptizing them that they actually know the Father through the Son, convicted by the Spirit, and then teach them. Christians today kind of make two mistakes, uh, two extremes. One extreme is that they disengage entirely, uh, and they lose all hope in improving the government. We can't change anything, why even try? That's a mistake. The other mistake is to put all hope in changing the government, and everything's about the government and the political system. 
we have to remember that the mindset that Jesus has. So this is one of my, my favorite texts. You can go there if you want, uh, Matthew 18. Whenever I, we talk about politics, Matthew, uh, not Matthew, sorry, John. John 18. <laughs> this is where the king of kings, the potentate of the universe, meets the dude who happens to be in charge of the slice of real estate they're standing on. Jesus talks to Pilate. And they have a conversation. And I just love the presence of Jesus. You can just imagine being in Christ's presence. Wherever he was, he was the dominating personality. And here he is in front of the most important person in driving distance. This is the person who holds his life and death in his hands and the life and death of all of the people under him. Pontius Pilate in verse, uh, John 18, 33 Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And I love how he just takes control of the conversation. Let's get something straight here, Pilate. You're not interviewing me. I'm interviewing you. And I'm here because I choose to be here because I'm submitting to my father. Now, What's this question you have? And do you even care about the answer? Or are you just like asking what the people out there are saying? I mean, he said it nicer than that. He's Jesus. But, you know, he's in charge is my point. And so, verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Like, I don't care. Um, Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth. Listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate has no category for a king whose mission it is to speak truth. Pilate lives in the world of power, force, domination, violence, fear, intimidation. Jesus says, I'm not a king like that. My kingdom's not of this world. I I have a higher kingdom with a higher goal. And you know what that goal is? To preach truth. Discipleship. Evangelism. Bible teaching. That's our king. That's our citizenship. That's our constitution. Those are our marching orders. Why do you love to blend into this world so much? When none of this stuff matters. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to, you know, go to school and get educated and get a job and have a career and play sport and have hobbies and build stuff and whatever. But that's not the point. That's the stuff that sort of keeps us alive and keeps us functioning in society and helps us have a a good testimony. But why are we alive? To speak truth. To know the truth, to believe the truth, to live the truth, to embody the truth, and to proclaim the truth. And you know what that truth is? 
But we have a king and he's coming back and he will rule this world and he will judge the living and the dead and time is running out. So let's get to work. Changing the world. One soul at a time. Parents with your kids. All of us with our friends and co-workers and family. Yes, this country is wonderful, but it's not our home. Our home is in heaven. It touches us, but it doesn't grip us. It affects us, but it doesn't concern us. We have higher priorities. We're strangers here. We're aliens. Now, if we do end up colonizing Mars someday, maybe it'll happen in our lifetime, and if it is, we will go plant a church. First Baptist, Mars. And when there's a church split, the one on the hill can call themselves Mars Hill. Um, but this, this is the point. Wherever there's people, there's sinners. And wherever there's sinners, they need a savior. And wherever you need a savior, you need the truth to be proclaimed. So until Mars, where has God put you? Talk about Jesus. You want to change the world? You want to change the government? Start one soul at a time. Start by telling someone this week about Jesus. And you'll change the world. You'll change the world for that person and everyone else that they tell about Jesus to. Jesus is the most compelling personality that ever existed. He's the most significant thing that ever happened to history. That's why our calendars are divided with years before Jesus and years after Jesus. It doesn't matter what initials you use. And he can have that same effect on your life, before Christ and after Christ. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the book of Philippians as much as I have. A book about joy through Jesus. This is your one takeaway. If you're here for the first time, this is the takeaway. Your joy, your hope, your contentment is not based on your circumstances. It is based on your, what? Starts with a P. Perspective. Which is related to your relationship with Jesus Christ. As we close the series, I'll do so with the final words that the Holy Spirit inspired in this very epistle. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, it has been such a wonderful journey through every verse of this majestic epistle. We are reminded that our anxiety, our depression, our fear are all tied to our circumstances. And we experience these vicissitudes in life when we take our eyes off of the rock which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would renew our perspective, that we would have an eternal perspective, that we would remember our citizenship is in heaven and that we have a king who's coming to judge the living and the dead. I pray for urgency and opportunity and boldness this very week to preach the gospel and fruit that comes from your hand. We pray all these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.